1945, the United Nations was formed as a, in part, peacekeeping organization in the world. And the reason for it, or part of the reason for that, was that during the past 4,000 years of world history, there have only been 268 years where there hasn't been any war going on. It's human nature to be at conflict with humans. And that happens in every arena of life. We experience it in our individual lives as we deal with other people. Conflicts arise from time to time. We understand what war is like in a family setting when people in families, whether it even be in the same household, cannot get along with each other. It happens in marriages. People battle with one another for control or for situations or in situations. There is constant conflict. And people even battle even in themselves. They fight between me, myself, and I. I mean, we are just a conflicting, conflicted people, human beings. We are. Now, as with all things, there are spiritual strings attached to the deeds that are done on earth. And so the reason why human nature is to war and fight, whether it be individually or collectively on a national scale, the reason is because there is a war that's going on in a spiritual realm, in an unseen realm, in ways that we can't understand or figure out. And that translates into war on earth. It's the byproduct of the spiritual war. Now, in the New Testament book of Ephesians in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul spoke about this. And here's what he said. He said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle or war or fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. That is that we are in a spiritual war. And that is what Paul is seeking to bring to our attention in Ephesians chapter 6. Now his focus in that passage is not so much on the nature of the war, but rather the defenses that we've been given. He says, take to you the whole armor of God. That is, God has equipped us with the proper defenses to go against Satan's devices. That's right. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says that we are not ignorant of his devices. So here's the summation, is that we find ourselves in a spiritual war. That spiritual war that's going on in invisible realms shows its head in physical realms that we do understand and that we do deal with. And ultimately, Satan is seeking to attack, to inflict his agenda of lying, stealing, and destroying upon man through that war. But we've been given also defenses in it. Now, in the chapter that's before us in 1 Kings, we're going to leave Elijah for a little while. He'll come back on the scene. 
And for the next two chapters, the subject of our study is going to be a man by the name of Ahab, whom we've met and we've been dealing with as we've been studying the life of Elijah. But in this chapter, chapter 20, that we look at tonight, and hopefully 21 if we have time, we're going to see the war that's taking place between Ahab, who is the king, the leader of God's people, and Ben-Hadad, who is the king or the leader of the Syrian people, the enemies of Israel. And in this chapter, not only will we see the historical account of those interactions, those battles and wars, but in it we will also see both the devices of our enemy, yours and mine as Christians as we fight the spiritual war, and also some of the defenses that we have as we fight that war. So the devices of our enemy and also our defenses as Christians as we resist and fight an enemy in that spiritual arena, that spiritual war. And so if you would look with me at the beginning here of chapter 20. It says, And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his host together. And there were 32 kings with him. So 32 other kings from smaller or lesser or other kingdoms with him. And horses and chariots. And he went up and he besieged Samaria and he warred against it. Now Samaria was the seat of Ahab's kingdom. It's the place where he had established the throne of the northern ten tribes of the nation of Israel. And it says that he sent messengers to Ahab. So Ben-Hadad sends a message to Ahab, the king of Israel, into the city, and he said unto him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Thy silver and thy gold is mine. Thy wives also and thy children, even the goodliest, are mine. And the king of Israel answered, so he sends a message back, and he said, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. In other words, he says, All right. (laughs) you want my wives, you want my kids, have you met Jezebel? You can have them, basically, is the reply that he sends. He lays down without a fight, verse 5. And the messengers came again and said, thus speaketh Ben-Hadad. So they bring the message back to Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad gets a big smile on his face as he sees the surrender of Ahab. And he says, okay, he met my conditions without a fight. I'm going to raise the stakes a little bit. And so he sends a message back the second time. And he says, thus saith Ben-Hadad, saying, although I have sent unto you, saying, you shall deliver me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children, Yet I will send my servants unto you tomorrow about this time, and they will search your house and the houses of thy servants. And it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in their eyes, they shall put it in their hand, and they shall take it away. Okay, so if you're going to give me your wives and your children and your silver and your gold, even the best of what you have, and you're going to lay down without a fight, then not only are they going to take that, but we're going to search through your houses and we're going to take everything that's precious to you. Since you're not interested in fighting, we'll do this all in one shot. We'll take everything that you've got. In this, first of all, a couple of devices of our enemy as we see an enemy of Israel inflicting his will or seeking rather to inflict his will upon Israel. Device number one that our enemy uses on us that Ben-Hadad also used upon Israel at this time is that the enemy always comes in or seems as a friend at first. 
You'll recall that this isn't the first time that we're coming into contact with Ben-Hadad, this king of Syria. If you recall from the chapters we studied prior to the ministry of Elijah, you'll remember that one of the former kings of Israel, a king by the name of Baasha, had had a league or a covenant, an alliance with Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria at that time. And then Asa, the king of the south, the good king, if you remember Asa from that study, he imparted this strategy to upset Baasha, and he went in and he paid Ben-Hadad to break his allegiance with the northern tribes and to make an allegiance with him. And upon breaking that allegiance with Baasha and making one with Asa, Asa overcame the threats of Baasha. Now, if you're like, what? Don't worry. Here's the point. After Asa gave Ben-Hadad the money that it cost to form that alliance, he was rebuked by a prophet. The prophet came and said, you don't realize what you've done. This man may be coming across to you as your friend, a man who's going to help you, someone who will strengthen you in your internal conflict and struggle. But what you're going to find in time is that he's a force beyond what you understand and comprehend, and it's going to come back and burn you in the latter end. And that's exactly what's going to happen with Ben-Hadad. As we see here, and as he will continue to be a problem for Israel in the coming years, uh, even after Ahab passes off the scene. But what's the point, the application for you and me? Is that when Satan comes and he seeks to inflict his will in our lives, his first line of attack is always that he seeks to come in as a friend. That's what he did with Eve, isn't it? When the serpent spoke to her in the tree, he didn't say, hey, I'm going to suck your soul right out of your body. No, he came in and he said, half God said that you shall not eat from every tree of the garden. And then he tempted her, enticing her, making her think that his will towards her was actually benevolent. No, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll know good from evil. And he seemed to be her benefactor, like he wanted to help her in some way. He came in like that. And through that line of attack, he was able to deceive Eve and then inflict his venom upon the whole human race after the fact. That's always the way Satan comes in. If you tell your story of how you got saved, at some point in it, you're going to have in that story a sin situation that you got into that was way too big for you. But When you got into it, you got into it because Satan didn't come saying, I'm going to destroy you. He came in and he whispered in your ear saying, you can have thy sins and you can have thy life. It won't affect you. You'll be able to control it. You'll be bigger than me, stronger than me, but make this allegiance with me. It's always how he comes in. But then after the fact, once he makes his attachment in our lives, we find that he overcomes, he overpowers, and ultimately he destroys Baasha, Asa made a covenant. Now it's coming back to bite them in the days of Ahab when, uh, when Ben-Hadad is strong. Satan always works the same way. First, he seeks a toehold within our lives. doesn't seem that strong. But once he gets a toehold, he increases it to a foothold. And once he gets a foothold, it's not long before he has a stronghold. It's always his way. He comes in as a friend at first. The second thing that Satan does in his device, the second of his devices that's seen in these opening verses, is that he has a strategy, and that is this. Take a mile, an inch at a time. You've heard the phrase before, give an inch, he'll take a mile. Well, Satan's philosophy is take a mile, an inch at a time. That's always how he works. Now, 
Jesus said that Satan is the enemy of our faith. He said that he is a liar and a murderer from the beginning and that he came to kill, to steal, and destroy. He is, Satan, without restraint when it comes to time, resources, and energy. He has an abundance of all of those things. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't have to spread himself out. He is highly organized and very efficient, and he knows what he's doing. And he's content to do his work in a life very, very slowly. He is strategic. He is the master psychologist. He knows human nature. He's a wizard of it. His ultimate goal is to destroy the soul, and his method is to control it piece by piece, a little at a time. And the point is this, is that he knows how to win incremental battles. He knows how to say, go just this far, but no further. And we see that here in the text. He says, Ben-Hadad does, he says, hey, let's go in, we'll take the silver, the gold, and the kings and the kids of the king. That's what we're going to do, the wives and the kids of the king. That's what, we're just going to take that much. But when he sees that he can take that much easily, then he says, hey, let's take the next stretch as well. He sends the message back the second time, and he says, not just your gold, silver, wives, and kids, but now everything that's pleasant to you, I'm going to take. See, that was his desire all along, but he knew he wouldn't get it if he went for it all at first. It's the same way that Satan works in us. He tempts us to just go a little bit into sin, just Go a little bit further than the line that God draws. Nothing bad's going to happen. Look at all the people that are walking on that broad path. And day by day, no destruction comes their way. And as he lures the child of God into compromise a little at a time, he says, if I can just get them to come a little bit my way, I know it won't be long before I can get them to go a little bit further. He wants a mile, but he's willing to take it inch by inch. And we see it here played out in this man. The only one that can thwart Satan in his strategy is God. I mean, how do you win an invisible war? If you were fighting someone who was invisible, you would lose every time. You would need an advocate or a helper that could see the invisible thing to help you. And that's God. He's the only one that can thwart the power of Satan. And thus, if you don't have him in your life, if you're not controlled by the Spirit of God, then Satan's going to win that battle every time. He will get the mile in your life. It's just the way it is. We move on in verse 7, and we begin to see the defenses. Look at verse 7. It says, Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land. So he gets the message that, hey, we're going to take the rest. And he says, all right, you know what? Let's put this battle on pause for a minute, and let me send a message to the people. He said, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man, Ben-Hadad, seeks mischief. For he sent unto me for my wives and for my children, for my silver and my gold, and I denied him not. And all the elders and all the people said unto him, Hearken not unto him, nor consent. Wherefore he said unto the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you did send for to your servant at the first, I will do. But this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. And Ben-Hadad sent unto him and said, The gods do so unto me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls, for all the people that follow me. In other words, if you knew how many people I had fighting on my side, you wouldn't be speaking so arrogantly. And the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not him that girds on his harness 
boast himself as he that puts it off. In other words, you're putting on your sword. The battle hasn't even happened yet. Don't boast as though the battle was over. In other words, don't count your chickens before they hatch. You haven't even fought yet. And it came to pass when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking, so there's beer muscle involved, he and the kings in the pavilions, that he said unto his servants, set yourselves in array, and he set them, and they set themselves in array against the city. The first thing that we see here in terms of our defenses, how do we resist when Satan seeks to usurp authority in our lives? I see here the importance of fellowship. See, prior to this, the message had come just to Ahab. And Ahab, he, in the best of his resources, figured, you know what? I should just give in. I got to give him the gold, the silver, the wives, because I'm no match for this guy. But once he included the other elders and he got counsel from those around him that would be involved in this as well, then the meter changed. They came in and said, what are you, nuts? You're going to just lay down and give this guy what he's asking for? Don't do it. We'll come. We're going to come and we're going to come help and we're going to fight with you. So often Satan, in fact, the Bible says it in 1 Peter Chapter 5, uh, verse 8, it says that he comes in like a roaring lion. That's his strategy. It's what he does. What does a lion do? They divide and they conquer. They look for a weakened or a vulnerable sheep or deer or whatever it is that's somewhat separated from the rest of the herd or flock. And then they surround that one and focus their attention on that one. Satan is that way. That's how he works in our lives. If he can separate you from the fold, if he can get you isolated by yourself, then he's able to surround you in a sense and show or bring forth your vulnerabilities and it makes his job that much easier to take you down. It's not so easy when you're in fellowship with others. I have noticed something happening for many, many years now, but I see it happening even more so in these days that we live in right now, is that the lives of Christians are so filled with busyness, with duties, with responsibilities, that the thing that they sacrifice is fellowship with Christians. They just don't have time for that one more thing to get to church or to be in home group or to be in fellowship with a a group of like-minded believers. That's the first step to that isolation that Satan will capitalize on and try to bring you down. I know it happens that way for me. When I'm too much by myself and I'm not around other believers, things happen in my head. Satan can mess with me. His whisper, his slithering whisper, you know, can get in and and, and it can confuse you, so to speak. But when you get around other Christians and you talk about the things going on in your life, there's something almost supernatural that happens. You remind you, you say, oh yeah, we serve the true and the living God. Satan's got no place within my life. And you kind of wake up and you shake out of it. I would encourage you, it's so important to be in fellowship, to not give it up in these days. I see it happening. It's happening all the time. The important things in life are never the pressing things in life. And the pressing things in life are never the important things in life. It's just the fact of the matter. What are the important things in life? Your family, your fellowship with God, your relationship with God, your devotional time, prayer, the ministry, the service that you give towards the Lord, those are the important things in life, but they're never pressing. They can always be put on the back burner or pushed off until tomorrow. What are the pressing things in life? The washing machine explodes all over the floor. The car breaks down. 
you have a deadline at work. Those are pressing things, but in the long run, they're not really that important. I mean, if you didn't do those things, it wouldn't change eternity. It would make life uncomfortable for a while, perhaps, but that's just the way it is. Never give up the important things for the pressing things. And if you have to make more room, pray, God, give me the wisdom of Solomon to know how to do it. When you're out of fellowship, you are pray for the devil. And we see here as Ahab consults those that God has put around him to support him, we see that his strength is exponentially increased. And it's a concept that's true for all of us. Well, we see here the kindness of God. Look at verse 13. It says, And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. Then he said, Ahab, Who shall order the battle? And he answered, you. And so this prophet now comes to this pagan, ungodly, unstable king, Ahab. And he says, God is going to deliver this multitude into your hand. Now, I find this absolutely amazing. Because if there is anyone on the planet that did not deserve by any stretch to have a prophet of God come to him and encourage him for victory, it's Ahab. Remember in the last chapter what he was doing? He was killing the prophets of the Lord. Him and Jezebel, his wife, they were eliminating them one by one. He had been hunting feverishly for Elijah, trying to destroy him. And now the very thing that he was seeking to destroy, God now brings to him to pronounce a message of victory when he least deserves it. There's a defense in this, in our spiritual war as well, and that's this. It's promise. It's promise. See, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Jesus said, of all that have been given to me, not one will be lost. He knows how to deliver the ungodly out of tribulation, out of warfare, and to put our feet in a solid, steady place. It's a promise that he gives to us. And even when we don't deserve it, he still is faithful to keep the promises that he has given to us. And so he makes that promise to him that, hey, I'm speaking it. The devil isn't going to win this war. He's going to, uh, you're going to um, have the victory. Now listen, the converse of the enemy's desire. The enemy's desire to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he wants to do in your life. But Jesus said that I am come to give you life and life more abundantly. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. So whereas Satan wants to kill, bind up, and destroy, Jesus wants to heal, liberate, set free. That's the agenda, the motive that Jesus has. And he's going to do his agenda in your life if you're walking with him, if you know him, because he promised that he's going to do it. And he's even able to do it against insurmountable odds. Satan may come to you like he comes to me and say, you will never be free from the powerful grip that I have upon your life. And it's true. Some of the things that we hold, that we kind of are held by from our former life or our times in the world before we came to know Christ, or even things that attach themselves to us after we come to know the Lord, some of those things can be so powerful. Sometimes it's just a part of our personality and who we are inside, you know, that we're, you know, centered 
we're angry people or we're bitter people or we're introverted or, you know, we're just depressed or oppressed. You know, we have these things in us and sometimes we can begin to think, you know what, there's no way that I can ever be set free from this because it's just, this is what I have to deal with. It's my cross to bear, so to speak. Don't ever believe that. Because the Bible says that God sanctifies us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And that he makes us more than conquerors through him that loved us. That neither height nor depth, principality, power, things present or things to come, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He makes us more than conquerors through it. His promise prevails over Satan's threats, no matter how powerful Satan seems to be. It's the promise that is given here against odds, even when he didn't deserve it. So, what happens? Verse 15, it says, Then he numbered the young men of the princes of the provinces. And they were 232. So he's got 200 more princes than Ahab has kings and kingdoms. The odds are not in his favor. And it says, And after them he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel fighting with him, being 7,000. And they went out at noon, but Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions, he and the kings, the thirty and two kings that helped him. And the young men of the princes of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, there are men that are come out of Samaria. And he said, whether they be come out for peace, take them alive, or whether they be come out for war, take them alive. So these young men of the princes of the provinces came out of the city and the army which followed them, and they slew every one his man. And the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the horsemen. And the king of Israel went out, and he smote the horses and the chariots, and they slew the Syrians with great slaughter. And so God gives them a supernatural victory in this thing because of his promise. This isn't Ahab's might. It's not his power. It's not Israel's might or their worth. This is God giving victory because he said he would give victory. That's what God does in our lives. He gives victory because he said he will give victory. Well, here comes the warning, verse 22. It says, And the prophet came to the king of Israel, and he said unto him, Go, strengthen yourself and mark and watch what you do. For at the return of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you again. Now in this, there is both a defense and a device, a defense that we have against our enemy and also a device that our enemy uses against us. What's the defense? Because that's what's first in the text. First of all, it's vigilance. It's vigilance. He says, strengthen yourself and watch and, or, and mark and watch what you do. Strengthen yourself. Be vigilant. Understand that he will be back. I think of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 when he went through the great temptation. Forty days and forty nights he fasted. And after it, Jesus was tempted by Satan. And Satan came to him on three different occasions over that span. And he tempted him in three different ways. And Jesus was able to fight off those temptations each time with the word of God. It is written, you shall not, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. You know, and he beats Satan back with the word of God every time. And it says that after the third attempt, when Satan sought to take out Jesus through temptation, 
It says that Satan departed for him for a season. In another gospel, it says, until an opportune time. He is relentless in the way that he comes against us. So how do you prepare for an attack that you know is coming? Well, first of all, you pray. What did Jesus say? He said, when you pray, say, deliver us from temptation. To the disciples just before the crucifixion, he said, pray that you enter not into temptation. There is a direct correlation between a praying Christian and the absence of temptation. When we pray, it strengthens us against the temptation. It eliminates our desire. See, a temptation can come, but when you've been fellowshipping with the living God, you see temptation for what it is, and it has no strength within your life. And so we're called to pray as an avenue of fighting. It's part of our vigilance. We're also called to obey. What does James say in James chapter 4? Um, he says, well, maybe I, I actually might, might have the, the reference. It's not James 4. It's uh, earlier part of James. But what does he say concerning temptation? He says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, as you submit to the ordinances that God gives and walk the straight path that he's laid out for us, and then as you resist the temptation that comes to stray from that path that God has set us on, it says as we obey and resist, Satan flees. He finds that he doesn't have what it takes to bring us into a place where he can destroy us. And so as we obey, we're being vigilant. We're resisting God. And then number three is to stay. Stay in that place. Stay in the mind frame that we are at war and that there are casualties in the war. That there's a prize for those that obtain, that, vic that are victorious, but there's a casualty for those that stray, that are aside. I said in a study a couple of weeks ago that when three things come together, desire, temptation, and opportunity, that we're in big trouble. See, if two of those things come together, we can stand against it. If it's just desire and temptation, but no opportunity to capitalize on the temptation, you can beat that. If you're being tempted, if there's a temptation and the opportunity presents itself, but you don't desire it, you're going to win that one because the desire isn't there. Any two of those can't do the job, but if all three come together at once, desire, temptation, and opportunity, watch out. So part of being vigilant is avoiding with everything we have the coming together of those three things in our life at any given time. We do that by staying close to the Lord in prayer, by resisting the devil and walking in obedience the straight and the narrow path and understanding vigilantly that we are at war and that Satan right now in the boardroom of hell has a whiteboard with your name on it and he's watching and he's forming a plan. But if you walk with Jesus, he can't touch you. So vigilance and also Satan's device is that he is relentless. What does the prophet say? He says, hey, You've gotten a victory, but he'll be back. Don't you hear Arnold in there? Some of you do. He'll be back. You know, the king of Syria. Satan, he'll depart as you resist. But he doesn't depart in total defeat as though he's gone forever. He's going to regroup, re-strategize, and reformulate his attack on you. And he will be back again. He is relentless. And that's what we see happen, the boardroom of hell in verse 23. It says, And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods, they didn't believe in one god, are the gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we. They fought in the area of the Golan Heights in that last battle. 
But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And do this thing. Take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their place. Now, captains would be more valiant than kings. Kings definitely or certainly wouldn't be the fighting type. Soft robes, soft hands, opulent alcoholics, as we've seen thus far in the study. Take the kings out and replace them with captains. Let's strengthen the army and let's hit them in their weak spot. That's what the, the, the captains say to him. He says, and number you an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he hearkened unto their voice, and he did so. And it came to pass at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians, and he went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids, but the Syrians filled the country. Now, there's some poetic speech for you. Two little flocks, you know, sitting there bleeding, disorganized, you know, whatever. And now you have the whole field and countryside surrounded with the enemy, the the, the Syrians. And it says, there came a man of God and spoke unto the king of Israel. And he said, thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they pitched over the one against the other for seven days, and so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians 100,000 footmen in one day. Now you remember the army of Israel consisted of 7,232 men, 232 princes and 7,000 soldiers. And by the power and the grace of God, these guys destroy 100,000 Syrians. What was the strategy of the enemy in this thing? He said, their gods are the gods of the hills, the high places, but their gods cannot help them in the valleys or in the plains. If we attack them in their weak spot, we're certain to obtain our courts. It's another device of Satan, if you would. It's a big one that he uses, and he's often successful with it, and that is this, discouragement. See, many of us, when Satan comes to us when we're on the mountaintop or in our strength, or maybe even in the area of our strength, he doesn't win that battle. But when he regroups and he watches our lives, he sees where our weakness is. And one weakness that I think every one of us has is that we can become discouraged from time to time. And Satan knows how to hit us when we're discouraged, doesn't he? It reminds me of Satan's garage sale. There was one time that he was selling all the tools of his trade. He was trying to raise some cash, you know. And so he had a garage sale and he put everything on display. He put alcoholism and drug abuse and dishonesty and corruption and everything that he uses to destroy the world and destroy people's lives he was selling. And so people were flocking to the sale and they were looking at all of his stuff and saying, look at that, look at that, look how impressive it is. And wow, how many people have been taken out with that? And they were just thriving. But over in the corner, there was this dusty little thing that was out of sight from everyone. And someone looked and said, what is that over there? And he said, oh, uh, I, that's not for sale. Pay no attention to that. That's, that's, that's nothing. It's forget about it. And they said, no, 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 what is it? And so finally, he, with a twinkle in his eye, he looked at him sideways and he said, well, He said, that's actually my favorite tool. I'll never get rid of that one. 
He says, that's the most valuable thing in all of here. It's more powerful and potent than anything else that you see. Well, they said, what is it? We don't recognize it. What, what could possibly be so valuable about that old ragged thing? He said, oh, this. He said, that is discouragement. He said, if I can use that in someone's life, if I can successfully apply that and get it into someone's mind and discourage them and make them think that there's no hope, then that will open the door for me to use anything else that you see on these walls in this place. That is my great door opener. It is the wedge that gets my way into so many lives. Satan so seeks to discourage. But the Bible says that doesn't matter what kind of ground you and I find ourselves on. It doesn't matter what kind of season we find ourselves in. The Bible says that we are able to be victorious because of the blood and the grace of God, regardless of where we stand otherwise. Romans chapter 8, again, verses 35 to 39, the Apostle Paul says in these most treasured of verses, he says, um, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, notice the discouragement was there, distress, persecution, nakedness, peril. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan cannot win against the child of God who's put their faith and their trust in Jesus and who walks with him. Well, we move on and we see Satan's fifth device now. Verse 31. It says, And his servants now said unto him, after losing a hundred thousand men, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes upon our heads and go out to the king of Israel peradventure, or perhaps he will save your life. So his objective now is just simply to stay alive. The enemy of Israel just wants to stay alive. So they girded sackcloth on their loins and they put ropes on their heads and they came to the king of Israel and they said, thy servant, Ben-Hadad, saith. They come in weakness now. I pray thee, let me live. And he said, is he yet alive? He is my brother. Is this guy an idiot or what? I mean, r really? He's your brother? He might be your brother in royalty in that you're both kings, but he is certainly not your brother in religion or spirituality. Was he your brother when he said, I'm going to take your wives and your pleasant things? Was he your brother when he said that handfuls of dust will not suffice for the armies of Syria? Was he your brother when he said that we're going to attack you in the, in the valley? And, I mean, this guy is your brother? Seriously? Now then, verse 33, watch this. They won. They got what they wanted. He says, now the men did diligently observe whether anything would come from him. That is, could they get anything from him in terms of intelligence? And they did hastily catch it. They caught it. And they said, ah, thy brother, Ben-Hadad, he said it. Oh, we've got, we win. 
And so he said, go ye and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came forth to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said unto him, the cities which my father took from thy father, I will restore. I'll give you back some ground. And you shall make streets for you in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. And then Ahab said, I will send you away with this covenant. Mark it in your Bible. So he made a covenant with him and sent him away. He couldn't win by force, and so he tried terrain, the valleys. He couldn't win by terrain, and so now he will try by covenant or by compromise, and he's successful. First of all, there's a plan. We see the plan in verse 31. The objective was just to stay alive. If Ben-Hadad, the enemy, can just simply stay alive and have access in some way to Ahab, he knows that ultimately he'll be able to regroup and come back around, which he will. That's the plan. The method is that he comes in softly. He comes in from an attitude of defeat. Your servant, Ben-Hadad, comes. And he comes in as an angel of light, making him think that all harm is past. And then he observes He says, just listen to what he says and watch his attitude towards Ben-Hadad and see if there's any hope of him living. And when he says, my brother, the guys know that they've got what they want. Understand this and never forget it as you consider the wiles or the devices of the devil. That he is the most observant being in the whole universe. He watches us like a hawk. He can't touch See, if you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, he can only do what God gives him permission to do within your life. The Bible is very clear. What he does is he sits up in the mezzanine and he watches our lives from a distance. He sees what we give our attention to, what we're affectionate about. He listens to the way that we talk and he takes notes. He's a great note taker. He says, oh, they're given to gossip. They're given to slander. Oh, they'll turn their back on even a friend. This is going to be easy. And he formulates and hatches his plan. He sees the things that we look at with our eyes and the things that we give ourselves to when no one else is looking. And as an observer and a strategic being from a distance, he makes a plan of how he can get us to veer off course and into a place where he can then reach us with his grip or chain us with his shackles. That's what he does here. Just watch. Watch what they do. Listen to the conversation and find the weakness. And they find it. This man Ahab has a secret place of affection for Ben-Hadad in his heart. And so Ben-Hadad comes back to Ahab now, and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to break down the border between our two cities. We'll enter into contract, and we'll have common streets of commerce that go between the two. You come to, to Damascus and do business with us, and we'll come to Samaria and do business with you. And in this, Ahab does far worse than anything else he's done thus far. Because by giving Ben-Hadad access to Israel, he's given him access not just to the gold and silver of the palace or the wives and kids of the king, but he gives him access to every other area of the land as well as he comes in and out as he wills. Jesus said not long before he went to the cross as he was gathered with his disciples in the upper room during that Passover season when he gave them so much instruction. He said, from this time, I'm not going to be speaking much with you. And here's why. Because the prince of this world comes, but he has nothing in me, Jesus said. In other words, Satan is coming. This is going to be the time of my greatest temptation. 
Because he's going to be working around the clock to keep me off the cross. I know he's coming. There's a great temptation coming my way. But Jesus was able to boldly affirm and say, but he has nothing in me. And he knew he would stand. He knew he would win because there was no open road for Satan to get in Jesus. Satan works the same way with you and me. All he wants is an inroad. He just wants one area of your life that's vulnerable or compromised that you're going to let him or his ways into. That's all he needs. And he'll come around and he'll just find that one way. And once he's allowed in just one area of compromise, he can then work from there to break down and begin to take that mile that he wants inch by inch by inch. And thus the importance that we stay so close to the Lord and so vigilant and aware of our enemy that we not meet with Satan at the table of compromise. Okay, I'll give you a little space. We do this sometimes, don't we? I mean, I know, I feel it in myself. Sometimes I'll hear a song that at one point in my life, it brings back a memory and it takes me back to a time. And as I hear that song, it'll play for a little while and the memories begin to flood in my mind. And there can maybe just be a little area of fondness in my heart about things that were destructive to me and things that cause fights in me still that I don't want there today. But yet I can say, oh, my brother, Grateful Dead. Wow, you know, back to those days a little bit. And then, and then it shakes me awake, you know. Or sometimes I'll see a person that was a friend of mine or hear from someone or about someone that was an associate or a friend or something from an old time in my life prior to my life in Christ. And it brings me back and there could be an affection in my heart for those days and I can say, oh, my brother, oh, my sister. But forgetting that those people, those associations or those behaviors, forgetting what those things destroyed in me and the damage that they did, things that I'm still fighting with to this day you can forget the harm that they caused. And that's exactly what Ahab does here. He says, oh, my brother. Ahab, he used to, or Ben-Hadad, he used to be an ally of Israel. We were greatly prospered during those days. Big mistake. Don't meet with the enemy at the table of compromise. Well, here's the consequence, verse 35. It says, and a certain man of the sons of the prophets said unto his neighbor in the word of the Lord. So a prophet speaks by the spirit. Smite me. I pray, or strike me. And the man refused to smite him. Now, if Bobby Hargraves came to me and he said, Nick, punch me in the face, I don't know if I would do it. (laughs) I mean, I can kind of relate to this guy. He's like, "Uh, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, the, the whole thing. He says, no, no, hit me. And so verse 36, it says, so he said unto him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you are departed from me, a lion shall slay thee. And as soon as he was departed from him, a lion found him and slew him. Now I look at this and I cry foul. I go, wait a minute. I mean, anybody could have done this. I don't think I would have hit the guy. What in in the world is going on in this illustration? And and part of me wants to say right now, I don't have a clue why, why God did this, but I'll take a crack at it anyway. I think it's a personal, a very personal illustration of what's about to happen. And that is this, is that if God will not spare a righteous man who disobeys a a divine edict, how much more an ungodly king who disobeys to the hurt of the nation? In other words, Ahab, who's evil, as we've seen over and over again, has just allowed an aggressively wicked king to live when God wanted him dead. 
how much more now is Ahab going to be in trouble for letting him live when a righteous man who wouldn't smite a prophet under orders from the Lord is destroyed for disobedience? It's a personal illustration of what's about to happen between this prophet and Ahab. Well, he goes on and he gives a poetic illustration. And so, verse 37, it says, Then he found another man, and he said, Smite me, I pray thee. And the man smote him. (laughs) So he says, Oh, I'm no dummy. I saw what happened to the last guy. There's a lion standing right there. And he hit him, and he probably hit him hard. Um, Which was the guy's desire. He wanted to to appear wounded, perhaps maybe even bloody. Um, And and if I saw someone else uh, not punch, and they died, and I was asked to punch, I would punch. Um, no doubt <laughs> at that point. And so the prophet departed, verse 38, and he waited for the king by the way. And he disguised himself with ashes upon his face. And as the king passed by, he cried unto the king. And he said, thy servant went out into the midst of the battle. And behold, a man turned aside and he brought a man, a captive unto me. And he said, keep this man, prisoner of war. If by any means he be missing, then shall thy life be for his life, or you shall pay a talent of silver. So he paints this parabolic picture, and he says, hey, someone came to me, this wounded prophet. Someone came to me, and he brought me a POW. And he said, here, you guard this man, and if you let him go, you're dead. Your life for his life, or you have to pay the price of his ransom. And so, verse 40, as thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said unto him, so shall thy judgment be, yourself has decided it. And he hasted and he took off the ashes from his face. And the king of Israel discerned him that he was one of the prophets. Now this is probably Micaiah, a man who's going to come up in uh, chapter 22 again. The prophet that is the most offensive to Ahab, uh, as we'll see a little bit later on in the story. But now he discovers himself to Ahab. He takes back the ashes. He shows that Ahab knows who he is. And then the prophet speaks, verse 42. And it says that he said unto him, thus saith the Lord, because you have let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction. Therefore, thy life shall go for his life and thy people for his people. You have put your sentence upon your own head and that you condemned me for losing a prisoner that wasn't even really a prisoner and said, I'm going to lose my life. You're going to lose your life because you let a man go whom God appointed to destruction. And the king of Israel went to his house heavy and displeased. And then he came to Samaria. So the message is clear. He says, you're done. You're through because you let this man go. And it says that Ahab's response was depression. Now, what did Ahab do here? Ahab traded friendship with God for friendship with the world. James chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot be the friend of the world and the friend of God. You've got to choose which side you're on. Are you a follower of God and his way and a citizen of heaven? Or are you a citizen of this world and in rebellion against God and following the devil? Which side are you on? First John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes to Christians and he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't ride the fence and halt between two kingdoms. You are either a full citizen in God's 
or you're a citizen and saved. You can't be friends with both God and the world. And Ahab sought to have both. He wanted the power, the victory, the promise of God to be with him. But at the same time, he also wanted Ahab and the advantage, I'm sorry, Ben-Hadad and the advantage that came from having relations with a pagan, ungodly nation. And it became his demise. It brought him down. What's the conclusion of this? And we'll end here tonight uh, in our study time together. Did you notice as we went through the study that there were more devices of the enemy than there were defenses for the Christian? It was five to three, if you were keeping track by ratio. There was five devices and only three defenses. Now, there are others on both sides, other devices, other defenses. But I think it speaks something to us. I think that the reason there's a disproportionate thing here going on, two reasons. Number one is that the defenses that God gives to us truly are few, but they are effective. They're proven. They work every time. When you lean upon the promises of God, when you're in fellowship and walking closely with other believers and walking close to God and you're trusting him uh, in that way, you're going to be victorious in the thing that God uh, has given to you. But when you're not the other side of the thing, you have absolutely no chance at all at victory because Satan is way smarter than we are. He, can't, uh, he, he can defeat us every time. And isn't it, isn't it amazing? It's not hard to see how Satan can take out someone completely that doesn't walk with the Lord at all. I mean, they don't even know that they're in a battle. And yet his desire and design is to still kill, steal, kill, and destroy. And we see that he does it with great success. So what's the exhortation tonight? Be vigilant. Understand that we are in a war. That this isn't a country club that we're in here in the church. It's a battle station. And that there's an enemy, there are casualties, but there's a crown for those that endure and those that overcome. And he's coming soon. So the exhortation, God would say tonight, stand against the wiles of the devil. We're not ignorant of his devices. Walk the straight path that leads to life. Abide in the word of God. Encourage yourself in the Lord. And don't be found feasting at the table of compromise. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we look at this chapter in Kings. And we recognize, Lord, the strength of our enemy, but we also know who is stronger. That you, Lord, give us the victory and make us more than conquerors through him that loved us. And we pray tonight, Lord, that you would give us a clear vision for each one of our lives individually. You would help us to see, Father, where we are, where we're weak. That you'd show us our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses. That you'd show us, Lord, where perhaps there's areas of our lives that are incompromised. And that you would bring us back again to total dependence and absolute surrender and trust in you. We lift up those areas of our lives, Lord, where we find that there are chains and bondage. And we would ask, Lord, that you'd continue to make us free as we continue in your word and know your truth. We ask, Father, most of all and above all, that our allegiance would be to you singularly. That there would be no place found for us in the world. That our citizenship and our colors would be clear that we would be disciples of Jesus Christ, bought, redeemed, and sold out for you. And so we ask you, Lord, tonight to please strengthen us, give us wisdom, that we might walk worthy of this calling that we've been given. And we give thanks to you for it, in Jesus' name. Amen.